Maya. Welcome to another episode of Zero Ambitions, a podcast about sustainability and the built environment. So we're black. So we're back with another oblique angle on the retrofit theme this week with Joseph Kilroy of the CIOB. Jeff gives him a, a proper introduction. And uh, CIOB, that's the Chartered Institute of Building, to talk about an issue they're pushing at the moment regarding the incentivization of retrofit over new build. Construction, as well we know, has an embodied carbon problem. And the industry, the commercial aspects, are much more focused on demolition and rebuild than making use of the stuff that's already there. It's increasingly a, a theme of the, the general discourse, but this is a, a theme that we are exploring more at the moment because it's really interesting and really vital. Anyway, they put out a press release calling for, in particular, in Ireland, incentivization using the tax regime to make it more attractive. It's an obvious thing, and as we discussed through the episode, it's mad how frequently the tax system is set up in almost direct opposition to any climate legislation or climate goals that are set for us, given how much of our carbon emissions is tied up in the construction industry. Anyway, we had a really interesting chat, up it's interesting for you too, about all these subjects from demolition to tax regime, what needs to be done, education. I won't hold you up any further. I'll just let you get into it. It was just Jeff and I this week. Alex was away at a conference. I'm sure we'll be back soon. Cheers for joining us. And you prefer Joe, don't you? Yeah, Joe is, is fine. Yeah, yeah. Well, then what do you prefer? Uh, is it Joe's for Joe? Uh, no, Joe, once once I've met someone, it usually reverts to, to Joe. So we've met before, Jeff. So let's just go with, with Joe. So I can call you Joe, Dan call you Joe. Yeah. <laughs> I'll just be overly familiar. Yeah, <laughs> that's fine. All right, Great. Jeff, do you want to do, do a bit of uh, introduction? Just introduce the, the listeners to Joe and uh, why you've you've invited him on today. Okay, yeah. So uh, we are joined by Joe Kilroy, who's the head of, he's a policy and public affairs manager, rather, for Ireland at the Chartered Institute of Building. And um I first got talking to you, Joe, what, oh God, started a year, I think it was, more or less of this year, um, and um, was impressed with the initial sort of uh, engagement that I would have had with you. And I got a press release in my inbox this morning with uh, the, the the institute, the CIOB in short, I mean, we love our acronyms here, um, urging the Irish government to incentivize refurbishment over demolition. And I just thought, and it's wonderful to see pillar bodies like this, establishment bodies, um, I'm not used to agreeing with uh, now the CIOB. I've never uh, nothing nothing specifically against you, uh, you know, as, as a body at all in the past. To be fair, but I guess um, I'm suspicious, you know, um, yeah. and promotionally, and I'm used to 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 been doing this green building magazine for 20 years, and you're used to kind of finding uh, finding yourselves uh, opposed to nearly everything coming out of most kind of pillar organizations in the construction industry. But that is changing. And uh, and uh, I have to say, this release looked really interesting. So for, I think what probably the thing to do, Joe, is just really, before I ramble on too much, is ask you like, who you are uh, and, uh, and 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 what this particular story is. Sure. Yeah. So my background and training is in uh, general public policy. I started off life working in consultancy. And then I moved into the world of think tanks with the Royal Town Planning Institute in London. So I kind of cut my teeth very much specializing in in housing and planning and infrastructure. 
And then about five or six years ago, I moved back to Ireland to take up a role with the Department of Housing in research and communication. I did a stint working with the Residential Tenancies Board, and I moved into working with the Office of the Planning Regulator when that was first being founded. Uh, and then about three years ago, I started working with the Chartered Institute of Building, which is, I suppose, a many things, but but generally we would call ourselves a professional body. And then within that, we're an education institution. So we we run our own courses in topics in the built environment, but we also accredit university degrees um, internationally and in about 12 institutions in Ireland. But then we're also a, a, a body, and this, this might speak to why you find yourself agreeing with us a little bit, Jeff, because we have a charter, which means we work in the public interest. And I suppose that's where the policy and research and public affairs function comes in, because with the charter, it means that everything that we do has to be in the public interest. So we're, we're not a lobbying organization. We, we don't lobby for the interests of our members necessarily, although thankfully the views of our members often align with the public interest. And I suppose having that charter frees us up a little bit to take a more critical perspective towards the built environment and the construction sector and to do things like shine a light on issues where, you know, a lot of progress is required, like uh, today, I suppose, uh, is sustainability. So, for instance, I'm just thinking back to Lenny, uh, when the journalist writing for us or, uh, in the magazine, the last issue of what uh, the, the predecessor to uh, or, or progenitor to, to Positive Plus, uh, was, it was a magazine called Conspiracy Ireland. And in the last issue, Lenny did a piece um, where we looked at the history of building regulations in Ireland um, and the mm. history, including the construction industry's attitude to building regulations in Ireland. And uh, the, the the main you know representative body in Ireland for for uh, for the construction industry, uh, he was able to show has been lobbying against uh, uh, building regulations since before there were building regulations in Ireland, <laughs> and, and it kind of continues c- continues to do so. So it's it's refreshing to be dealing with a body that uh, I suppose because of how it's constituted um, and run uh, takes a different tack. And come here, um, just I got this press release specifically this morning. Um, it, it covers a, a a report that the CRIB has has. Well, look, let, you just you, you tell me a little bit about what 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 this news is specifically, rather than me trying to do a, a botched job of explaining what it is. Okay, sure, yeah. So, so the overall topic we're looking at here is, is sustainability. Again, for a little bit of context, uh, the CIOB within policy and research, we, we operate now within about five different themes that's been decided by our, our, our policy board, you know, a series of kind of unimportant internal governance measures. But basically, sustainability is is a major priority for the organization at the moment. Um, and that also drips into other areas such as our, our corporate plan. So in Ireland, we've been very much heartened to see in the last two or three years in particular, that there's been quite a lot of climate policy and, and legislation being introduced. We now operate with a, a Climate Action and Low Carbon Development Act. We have a Circular Economy Act um, and a series of regulations and, and strategies and policies that do speak to the urgency of the, the sustainability issue. I suppose the issue that we've identified is that, well, well firstly, the, the built environment itself, uh, so the construction sector and, and all its kind of attendant practices, accounts for almost half of all carbon emissions in Ireland um, at the moment. And a significant proportion of that comes from something called embodied carbon. So that's the carbon that is produced in the construction process of a building from mining and quarrying and transporting, etc. 
to the final building of a of a project or of a, of a development. And the issue, I suppose, that we've identified at a high level is that despite the fact that Ireland has very sensible climate legislation in place, the existing frameworks that we have, particularly the tax system, are acting antagonistically to that. So, for instance, the, the point that we're making in this paper is that VAT on demolition is charged at a reduced rate, which means that in terms of the incentive structure, if you're in the construction industry, if you're in the construction business, the tax system is incentivizing you to demolish and rebuild rather than retrofit uh, and repair. And, and we know, coming back to that embodied carbon issue, that uh, construction and demolition waste uh, is Ireland's largest waste source, really. Um, and we can also know from the projections that we have um, from, I think it's the Department of Finance's study, that while operational emissions in the construction sector, so the, the emissions that result from the, the running of buildings, the heating and cooling, et cetera, you know, are going down and are projected to continue to go down because we have a regulatory environment now, which means buildings are built to a good energy efficiency. Even though that's the case, embodied carbon emissions are predicted to go up because we're building a lot more, which, which is a good thing. But the, the problem we have is that uh, the VAT structure is encouraging people to demolish and rebuild rather than repair and retrofit. And, and we think that that is something that needs to be uh, remedied uh, in order to make the VAT structure consistent with, with our climate legislation. Because at the moment, the two things are acting antagonistically to each other. And uh, yeah, we, we think that needs to change. That's a fascinating uh, insight. Um, do you think, my sense at least, is that embodied carbon, while there's been good work recently by the Irish Green Building Council, for instance, in this regard, and uh, working with UCD to kind of try and quantify the embodied carbon impacts of, say, the, the National Development Plan, um, there's a sense that, that it's an issue that people are just not aware of, even at a policy level, potentially, you know, in other words, that, um, that of course you would demolish and, and build a new building because new buildings are, are uh, NZ and old buildings are old buildings, you know, notwithstanding all of the other questions about the disruption and the architectural kind of heritage and everything else. But, um, uh, you know, is that your sense? Do you, do you think that uh, there's an understanding of that anything we do in this space should be considered and quantified in in these terms yeah i i think that's right i i think that there is in some ways a correct understanding that a lot of the times when we build a new building because we have regulations that mean that that new builds must meet a certain level of energy efficiency in the way that they operate that that means that we should be knocking down existing buildings and and building new more energy efficient buildings in their place but i think that that obviously ignores the significant amount of carbon it requires to get to the point where the old building is demolished and the new one has been has been built. And I think if you look at the proportions, so you know, as I said, specifically 30, 37% of all Ireland's carbon emissions are from the built environment. 23% of those are operational, and the remaining 14% is embodied carbon. That 23% is going down, and that 14% is going up. Mm. So Whatever way you cut it, in terms of our overall national emissions, embodied carbon is is a big issue. And indeed, it's an increasingly internationally recognized issue. But I do think that you're right, that there seems to be, and this kind of is an, an ongoing debate, I suppose, in the industry, there seems to be an understanding or a view that, you know, whatever we knock down, we save carbon in the long run through the way that the new building will operate because it'll be more energy efficient. But that that just ignores 
the significant amount of emissions required to get to the point where the new building is being constructed. And it also ignores a lot of the innovations that are happening in terms of building restoration and the ability to create new facades to make existing buildings just as operationally uh, energy efficient as, as new buildings. I also wonder, it's fascinating, I also wonder to what extent uh, the way we account at a national level for emissions comes into this because we have uh, production-based emissions accounting, um, as I'm sure you know. So in other words, we only accounted for um, the emissions that occur actually in the country uh, from us making things here, for instance, if we buy things or, or transporting them uh, to here, I think even only in the context of the travel that happens within Ireland, you know, so if we go to like, you know, if, if we're bringing in stuff from from other countries, uh, high polluting products potentially uh, made in other countries, um, that almost isn't a consideration. I mean, it is when you do life cycle assessments on buildings, but from a national accounting perspective, uh, that might might uh, might be a consideration too. I don't know if that's something you've you've looked at or not. Yeah, I mean, obviously, the the operational efficiency of a building is also reliant on the low carbon impact of the supply chain which is as you say the way because of the way we count carbon not something we can really guarantee or even measure um in an accurate way so i, I think that the the gravity of the decision to demolish a building and rebuild you know anecdotally often a very similar one particularly when it comes to the commercial real estate market you know needs to be something that we that we get to grips with at a policy level and look I, I don't want to overlook what is already happening there there is a lot of talk of carbon metrics and and doing kind of uh site-based carbon assessments but but still and all a lot of this is geared towards the operational efficiency of, of what we build um, not so much, you know, what's involved in the in the construction process itself, and and a lot of it talks about like if you look at the uh, circular economy strategy for the construction sector, it's basically silent on the existing incentives in terms of tax and and VAT etc. But it does talk very eloquently and in a very well informed, data driven way about the different materials that we could be using in, in new build projects. But it, there, there is a bit of a blind spot. I kind of agree with what the spirit of what you were saying just now around, you know, embodied carbon and, and what it takes to get to a point where we actually are building a new building uh, on top of one that's been demolished, not, not to put too fine a point on it. One aspect of this that I find really intriguing, like it's really good to hear uh, an organisation like yourself speaking in these terms. And it feels like this could be a trigger or a catalyst for the organizations that, well, the construction the companies, the developers, to actually start thinking about embodied carbon properly. Because like we work in this space, we have a whole heap of clients who are only just beginning to get to grips with the concept itself. You know, we've we've been in rooms with really senior people in the industry and asked them the most basic question like what is carbon and we'd have been happy with the answer you know burnt toast that's carbon it's an element but what we received was abject silence like a like a, a first year class in their first french lesson having been asked by the teacher come on vous with no preparation there is panic in the room and I just love hearing an English person say, like, speaking oh, French, like, there's memories of, of, of old holidays as a kid, seeing the arrogant uh, English, oi, <laughs> garçon. <laughs> I had a French teacher, Madame Pelting, 
who uh, she appeared to hate French because she married a Frenchman, suffered uh, adultery, broke up with him, and then ended up back in Chorley, where I'm from in the Northwest. And so there seemed to be an underlying tone of resentment, an extra resentment whenever she said things like, et vous stupide? Really broad. Here, I can hear the hatred. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. I was in a terrible form at school. Anyway, we digress. I think it's a really interesting way of incentivizing people's thinking about the subject because just knocking that off the rebuild. Sorry. Yeah. Knocking, like keeping the VAT on demolition projects and knocking it off deconstruction, as it would be, it's gets people thinking about it but the costs of deconstruction as it stands now are higher than demolition like in terms of cash money not like carbon values but it's a way of precipitating the conversation and enabling people to address it because these skills do exist like within the industry but to be clear you're talking about deconstruction carefully kind of uh salvaging uh, materials from a uh, from an existing building yeah uh, to find to find uh, ways of kind of reusing that value yeah yeah but we talk about that like it's anathema to demolition yeah, like, yeah no demolition company uses a ball on a chain like that doesn't happen like the costs of waste separation and extraction are significant for the last 20 30 years deconstruction has always been an essential part of demolition because if you're knocking a mill down or an old building and you see row after row of slates on the top of that roof that's a deconstruction job because they've got cash money value Good quality brick can be extracted from the site and resold through reclaim. The the you don't have to worry so much about the copper in the the pipe work, but all the old cast iron radiators that you might find and other fixtures and fittings like that, they all have value. Like architectural salvage used to be a hidden secret of the demolition industry. Like if you could spot a floor that was a, a tarmac surface that was laid over cobbles in the UK in particular. Like all those cobbles and sets, they're going to be worth something. Deconstruction has always been knocking about. Mm. And that's before you even think about conservation work where aspects of buildings have to be demolished or asbestos removal, which is like high rent deconstruction work because of all the, the health and safety implications. So these skills do exist. It's just that they are hidden within the job or they are used at a, a premium. And it feels like this sort of gambit like whether it's in ireland and man i i i view this with envy like sitting in the southeast of england once again but like oh man it could be a really strong catalyst for getting people to think about how to utilize the skills that already exist sort of making a better practice approach cost neutral or something like cost neutral don't be too envious down because we don't don't make our policy makers think they're doing uh too good a job you know, the point of this is to try and, uh, while there's been progress made in certain areas, try and ensure that that that, that, that this is aligned from a tax perspective. And my sense, generally, from talking to, to people in policy over the years, has been where you propose things that affect the tax base uh, revenue, you get very, you know, uh, if, it, if, if it's a, a, a possible threat to tax, they get very particular about that. Very, um, you know, if you're messing with their tax rates, uh, they, can, they, they, they don't like it, you know. So that was a long way of uh, ask, long, really, really long-winded, like meandering way of asking the question: How do you see this actually working? Is it to incentivize a, a change in business practice? 
or are you being uh, are you manipulating the construction market by getting them to engage with this as a subject which feels equally worthy yeah i, I yeah I, I think a little bit of both to be honest but i do think we have to accept that at the moment in the construction industry there is just an embedded culture of demolish and rebuild and look i i want to say mostly I, I would by no means say that that's ubiquitous throughout the sector but but mostly when it comes to a new project um, particularly a large scale one, if there's an existing building in place, often the tendency is to design a fresh, uh, demolish and rebuild. So I suppose if you realign the incentive structure via the, the VAT system, you're at least encouraging, I suppose, in some ways, financially forcing uh, the industry to, to consider the other option of, well, actually, could we pause for a moment here and look at the existing structure and renovate that rather than go to this incredibly carbon hungry process of demolishing, rebuilding the whole thing? And, and, and again, you know, this bit is anecdotal, but if you look around in cities in Dublin, where I live, for example, um, and I would like to come to adaptable buildings and, you know, at some point in the conversation, but you can see, again, particularly in the commercial real estate sector, there's a lot of offices getting demolished and rebuilt as offices, sometimes <laughs> to a little bit bigger, sometimes to a similar size, almost always, or I should say always to, to a better standard of energy efficiency. But again, coming back to what we were saying at the outset, that in you know, from an environmental perspective, that kind of ignores the 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 process of, of demolition and the impact of that. So I think at the moment, we're, we're starting from a position where the presumption is in favor of demolition rebuild uh, and anything we can do to have that decision revisited on a, on a project by project basis, I think is a good thing. And I think that the VAT structure is a, is a good place to start. I'd love to see. Uh, so we're starting in the magazine to get our hands dirty in terms of, uh, of publishing embodied carbon calculations. And actually, the calculations are getting more and more accurate, you know, um, as more manufacturers get uh, things like environmental product declarations for for their products, and um, and the tools are getting you know the, the methodologies underpinning them are getting more sophisticated and more 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 detailed. Um, but it is that whole thing of just quantifying the impacts. You know, uh, it's 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 so enlightening. It's so important, and and it, and it, what I have to say, it really frustrates me uh, from the limited engagement I've had in this. And I understand that you kind of need the, the level of evidence to be high enough. Um, in terms of the the certification of products and the methodology and so on uh, for a lifecycle assessment, a state body, for instance, come with confidence, uh, you know, factor this into. Uh, it's one thing to require the calculation, but it's another thing to make a decision or or you know um, on incentives or grants or whatever it might be based on on things like embodied carbon. But when you see this being ignored uh, at present, and you see, um, for instance, things like one of my pet subjects is PV. PV is a great technology. Uh, and when you consider it in the whole life carbon sense, it pays for itself many times over in, 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 in whole life carbon terms. But against that, we have featured some buildings where over a 60-year lifespan, as in accordance with the UK, the RICS methodology that's used for whole life carbon over there, you know, a, a, a passive house with a large PV array, the PV ended up being based on, on one particularly polluting kind of panel, uh, you know, because we know no, no environmental property declaration, no data, for the actual one that was used so we looked at two default scenarios one which is the kind of most polluting one on the market what it would have worked out at 60 percent over 60 percent of the total for the whole building just the pv panels right and mm. there was another one that we found which was a quarter of that total in other words knowing that information 
uh, at the outset can completely transform uh, how you think about a project and then taking this to a new build versus uh, re- you know retain and uh, demolish a new build versus retain and and, and improve uh, again you, you, you need to get into this kind of number crunching to be able to have a serious conversation I, and I, I know it's reductive to just be thinking about these things in, ter- in carbon terms because there's a bunch of other kind of considerations too you know uh, positive and, uh, and negative uh, but you know uh, such as the impact that you're having uh, on having a construction site uh, you know a lot more construction activity for instance uh, the impact for local people the impact of air quality or against the, the extra money being spent and you know so, so it is it is complicated but uh, I, yeah, I'd love to see more quantification being done on this, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I think, you know, as we were kind of getting at there, part of part of suggesting this and, and kind of rejigging the, the VAT system is to get people thinking about it. Because a lot of people, even within the sector, you know, notwithstanding what, what, what we were saying earlier, but a lot of people within the sector do want regulation on this. You know, people understand the the gravity of embodied carbon as an issue and um you do have some firms leading from the front and doing their own carbon audits and and making decisions on that basis but but it does require leadership from from government and the thing is i suppose with this suggestion is that it does require joined up thinking between different departments because obviously you know um the exchequer and the department of finance are the ones who make decisions about uh tax and, and vast and revenue uh, whereas the built environment would typically be the purview of the Department of Housing, um, the Department of Transport, etc. So this this does kind of require a holistic approach, which we're not great at, I would say, um, in Ireland, but you know, obviously internationally as well, uh, it, it's also the case. But I do think when you even do a kind of a surface level investigation of embodied carbon, the numbers are quite frightening, and <laughs> it's it's. It's no coincidence, I would say, that it's convenient to just say, okay, but the new buildings that we'll build will be more environmentally friendly in the way that they run. So let's let's keep going because that's kind of in favor of economic growth and industry, et cetera, et cetera. But there are other ways of, of, of doing things, I suppose, rather than this kind of constant growth model. Not, not that I want to get into the kind of degrowth growth debate, but I suppose it's worth... I suppose analyzing whether or not build, 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 you know, and damn be the consequences is the way to do things, or or whether we can use more imagination. Right, this is red meat to Don there. You all. This is red meat to you, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. I'm see the bit that like 100 percent agree. When one tries to work out how to address this sort of change, like I think. The way you're approaching it by using something like the tax system to catalyze people thinking differently or talking differently about it is the right way. But it's such a massive change that's required to shift from this build, 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 consequences be damned. Because you're sort of implying a degrowth agenda, which terrifies the shit out of people because it sounds like like, too red, isn't it? People, people get feared out by it. And what we hear again and again in relation to construction and all other industries is that the, the folk around policy, the folk who define policy, they will listen to all the evidence of the reports and the research. And then at the end of it, they will say, but can we have a market-based solution, please? 
like rather than like government stimulus or subsidy. You know, we'll subsidize the oil companies till the cows come home. No problem. But beggar making the world a better place. But another aspect that I find really interesting that you sort of alluded to, well, no, you 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 actually alluded to, um, was that some companies are leading the charge on their own in some sort of insurgent capacity. And that is amazing, like the companies that do. We're working with one manufacturer that they're doing some astonishing work and their goal is to do better because what they i was just reviewing the workshop we did with them uh yesterday jeff and one of the things that came out of that is that they described their clients are waiting they're sitting on their hands waiting to be told what they have to do so the point about waiting for regulation like that needs to be imposed in order to stimulate activity whereas these people they're pushing, they're forging well ahead of regulation, thinking well beyond. They said 60 years ahead, trying to imagine what the world in 60 years is going to require of us now, which is phenomenal. So again, I digress. It's amazing what some people are doing. But people who aren't as engaged with the challenges or able to appreciate the future challenges, it's really tough for them to, to get into the subject at all. And this is why I my attention was drawn to this as a, a stimulus for people to learn more. One of the things that stood out in the press release was your direct reference to supporting the circular economy because waste is increasingly going to be an issue. A lot of people don't realise, but in Ireland in particular, it will be a little while coming in the UK, but there is a trend line in this direction that Anyone knocking a building down is going to get, or building anything is going to get taxed on the waste. There will be a cost to the amount of waste that their site produces. And unless they start to mitigate it now, that's going to be one of those costs that comes, that feels like it comes up out of nowhere. So the circular economy aspect, uh, reuse, recycle, remanufacture. Yeah. I, I have a slight kind of a problem. Uh, I like, I like well, a lot of, most of what I read about circularity, but. The, the fundamental element that needs to kind of engage, be engaged with it is, you know, uh, that needs to be considered as part of this. And I don't know whether circularity, the concept captures this, is asking the question, do we need the thing in the first place? You know? Uh, <laughs> no? Um, well, like, well, yeah, there's that. And uh, the fact that it's a really complicated subject uh, or idea and there's little or no infrastructure for it. <laughs> Yeah, but it's yeah, really think- fascinating, Joe, to, to, to just to have uh, a representative body like the Charter of the Building asking the question about, given that we're on a, a finite planet, you know, a planet with finite resources and we're, we're consuming through them at a rate of knots and cleansing air, water, uh, and so on, uh, left, right, and center, you know, uh, that uh, it's, it's just fascinating to hear someone in your kind of position kind of acknowledging this, you know, even if implicitly or explicitly, you know. Yeah, I mean, as I said, the, the numbers kind of speak for themselves. So there's there's no real there's no real ignoring this issue for the the construction sector, um, and I do think that that very basic question that yourself and Dan were were asking there, you know, do we need it when it comes to a, a building project is is an important thing to ask. And I suppose if we look at you know office building at the moment, for instance, we have the highest rate of occupancy or. Uh, the highest rate of vacancy we've had for for a long time yeah um in the midst of a you know a, a lack of accommodation in the residential sector so 
you know, the answer to the question increasingly is no, we don't need it. Um, and another kind of related argument to this is, you know, are there things, are there measures that we could take if we're going to continue to build large scale buildings, particularly in central urban locations, which does seem to be what we're going to do? Um, are there, is there a policy or a regulatory environment we could create, which means that those buildings could be adapted to different uses without the need to demolish them? Um, and without the sacrificing of of quality, um, mm. at the moment we we build spec offices, and they're really only viable as spec offices. You you couldn't have people living in them. But increasingly, internationally, we're seeing, not least led by the EU and the the directive they're putting in place for buildings to be built, you know, in a more neutral way, and for the user to decide on on what use they're put to. Which means that we probably wouldn't get involved in these kind of demolition uh, style debates. Uh, we, in in so far as we would be able to to, to reuse what we already have. Um, so I think that that's kind of a bit of an elephant in the room of this whole debate. You know, why are we building things that only serve one purpose? And you know, when we know that the lifespan of buildings uh, in cities. It's getting shorter and shorter because of changing economic circumstances, because of changing habits of the users of the built environment. You know, why are we not building things that can be used uh, in different ways? And, and I don't think the the changed work practices post COVID and the occupancy rate in um, offices is is going anywhere. So I think that has to be part of this conversation as well. Yeah, we're going to be having uh, some fellows from RKD, the Dublin architectural firm on the podcast soon to talk about this because they they've been doing they've been doing some really interesting thought leadership work in looking at what the best use of these spaces is like what building types are better suited to what kinds of reuse like uh 60s office buildings 60s 70s office buildings because of the size of the floor plate are the most suitable of their type for reuse as residential mm-hmm more contemporary office spaces, the big glass bricks, they're not really good for <laughs> for people yeah. buildings. But and which one are we knocking down and which one are we building at the moment? <laughs> See, <that's... laughs> We're knocking down the adaptable ones and building the unadaptable ones. So yeah. But uh yeah, I'm looking forward to having them on because they're they're addressing uh this this issue of mixed use and economic sustainability as well as environmental sustainability. Like I won't I won't uh proceed everything they've got to say but it's they've got some really interesting ideas that they're pointing to people about you know a ground floor make it a restaurant or a, a, a community viable space have mm-hmm. mixed use office artist studio and living space in the other bits of the setup a bit like do you remember the old bed Z project was oh, yeah. set up to have offices next to accommodation reducing people's commute time and ensuring security all the time because people will be living or working in the vacated spaces, which, I mean, that's what, a 20, 30-year-old project? I can't remember. 20 years old, yeah. It wasn't new when we were reporting on it back in 2002. About 20 years old. About 20 years old. It's... Yeah, notwithstanding the overheating problems it had, but that's another... <laughs> well, getting things wrong is part of the process. We learn how to do better. Yeah, you say that, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, even even the idea of uh, adapting uh, commercial to residential, it's it's not that new. I mean, the, the resurgence of midtown Manhattan 
uh, as a residential mecca in the 80s and 90s like a lot of that was driven by the retrofitting of uh office space that had been built at the turn of the century which obviously had uh more space requirements than than what we have now so you know it shows you what's possible if these things are thought about imaginatively and, and we reflect on what we already have rather than seeking to to demolish and rebuild and there's also been a lot of work like that done in uh in toronto and to a lesser extent london uh and you know we always have to mention holland in these conversations because they get the built environment so right but you know a lot of um new builds that are happening in central urban locations in in holland particularly in amsterdam are built in this kind of skeletal way so that they can be adapted uh, to different uses and you know it it means that we're not having to they're not having to demolish as many buildings as uh, as we do whereas you know as dan was saying the kind of contemporary glass boxes that we're building not so adaptable so i you know again it's anecdotal but i walk along the the canal in in dublin and you see a lot of commercial development that is being built where commercial development once happened i you know i wonder if some of those brutalist type office blocks, I wonder what they would have been like as housing. Because at the moment we're seeing a lot of these new, um, and I know it's less of an issue in the kind of the highly energy efficiency rated office buildings, but we are seeing a lot of even newly built office buildings standing vacant and, and larger tech firms giving up their lease options. So I, I think oh, yeah. that we do have to start reckoning with these with these issues i think there's a there's a bloodbath coming in commercial property uh it's not looking pretty you know uh, uh there's rumors flying around about redundancies and so on with, with our architectural practices and servicing that kind of space too so uh, you know uh it's it is a worry and yeah flexibility seems like why wouldn't you want it you know i mean uh uh, uh the assumption that we have all the answers now and know, know uh how um settlements are going to be uh rigidly operated uh for the next 30 40 50 years or more seems extraordinarily arrogant frankly yeah well we had uh, we had alexandra Hesedu of nsa of capital so like a sustainability finance firm so they do big ticket stuff helping to finance sustainability projects and the built environment is is a big one and you know front and center in their thinking is this this mixed use and planning for reuse like there is there was what is it uh the lead standard structure, Jeff, in Paris that was currently empty because no one wanted it. Was it Lead mm. or Briam? Like top mm. draw sustainability standard, but no one wants it. So it's going unused because it's offices where, you know, developments in Spain are getting funded to address myriad crises all at the same time. You know, housing, office space, the a lack of social space or public social space. Like it's... Quite remarkable. Like, man, we know what we need to do. It's just the people with the money don't really want to do it because they want to hold on to the the vestigial returns of the world as it used to be. You know, there'll still be a lot of commuters, but Pret's not going to have the same influence in 10 years' time that it, it did 10 years ago. Like, I, I don't know how ubiquitous Pret is in Ireland or if it is at all. One of the great nightclubs in Dublin is now a Pret, so uh, too, too ubiquitous in my view. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, God, yeah. But, I mean, you know, the world is changing. And you're right, Jeff, like the the economic daisy chain of the, the pension funds developing, the real estate investors developing, 
property to knock out to the pension funds that want to hold on to the returns, benefiting from the the gobshite mouthpiece that is Lord Alan Sugar or Sir Alan. Sir Alan, <laughs> isn't it? Which one is it? Is he a sir or Lord? He's a, he's a sir. He's a yeah. gobshite anyway. Like bleating on about how everyone must return to the office. Because as it turns out, Amstrad, whilst it was a big name, didn't make him that much money. He made his bajillions of pounds off the back of uh, canny property investing. And when I say canny, I mean being one of them. Buying when it was cheap, yeah, yeah, yeah. Being one of them people who had the 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 luck, like our parents' generation, who are uh, so canny. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> all of them. Yeah. yeah, be more canny. That's uh, good advice. Yeah, be born in the right time. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. In the UK, it's you. you <laughs> your wealth can be predicted in relation to uh, your generation in terms of like being a boomer or being one of them Normans what uh, occupied the UK a thousand years ago. Jesus. So uh, this this particular piece of work was born of, uh, or you mentioned that it was born of a, a study that was looking at Scotland or was intended for Scotland as well. Like you're an international organisation, so what's the international outlook? Yeah, yeah. So we we wrote a paper um, looking at the looking at a similar issue in Scotland, where again, now Scotland's tax and VAT is set by Westminster. So in in Ireland at the moment, we're charging um, demolition at the same rate as rebuild uh, and retrofit, which is a reduced rate of about a thirteen point five percent. In the UK, Scotland, Northern Ireland, Wales, and England. Uh, the situation is actually even worse because VAT uh, for demolition is up 0%. So there's a real incentive um, in the built environment and the construction sector in the UK to demolish because it's free in terms of, of, of tax. So the paper that we wrote uh, in Scotland, because if you're in Scotland, despite the fact that you're a devolved administration, the, the tax is still set by Westminster, so you can't really decide to change VAT. Our proposal was to introduce a levy on demolition to somewhat equal the playing field uh, in terms of the, the the charging that takes place from the public purse between demolition and and rebuild. And there's been real interest in in Scotland. the The idea has been discussed in Parliament. There's an all party group looking at it, and a letter has gone uh, from the all party group on housing, uh, signed by several MSPs to the Treasury in Westminster, asking for a reconsideration of this 0% rate of VAT on, on demolition. Because, you know, as we, as I was saying at the outset, the, the VAT structure in the tax system isn't really compatible with all this new climate legislation we have. And, and Ireland is not alone in that. The, the, the UK has got the exact same issue, possibly works, where all of the existing frameworks, particularly tax, are incentivizing the behaviours that the new climate legislation is trying to present is trying to prevent and i'm talking about the construction industry but if you look around you transport you know so many other things that we do uh, travel of any sort the tax system is almost set up to oppose the new climate legislation and, and i think before we start lumping new climate legislation and policies as welcome as they are on top of what we already have, I think there really needs to be a reappraisal internationally of what what is our tax system saying that consumers and companies and industries should do, and are we happy with that in terms of our sustainability goals and our net zero by twenty fifty target, which is kind of shared across Ireland and the UK. I mean, that feels like I mean, this feels relevant across Europe 
the UK, North America. I mean, this sort of approach feels relevant to anyone. It's interesting. It does feel like the writing's on the wall as well, that the UK will resist progress as much as it possibly can because of our, because of them Normans, what they're in government. <laughs> <laughs> but I but, think that there's, there is a realisation in a lot of these countries that, yeah, our tax system says the opposite to what our climate legislation says. So, but, but politically, who is going to grasp that nettle? You know, in the UK, is it going to be a party who's only got six months to a year maximum to a general election? Or is it going to be a party that's just been elected in and has four years to to, to make some changes that maybe people will forget about by the time of the next election? So yet again, in terms of housing, but now in terms of climate, we're faced with an issue that just couldn't be less suitable to a political cycle because all the incentives need to be long term, whereas political cycles are, are four to five years. Yeah. I think there there is some hope within this. So we're speaking with a demolition company about working with them on their sustainability strategy because because they they're really interested in it. Uh, the the founder became an eco warrior. Like he had one of he's one of them fellows who had an epiphany and he realized that something needed to change. And whilst they were 2 years ahead of their clients, their clients have started making demands of them which mm. they are prepared to deal with and this is like where you're dealing with the larger developers like tier mm-hmm. one contractors that lot because because they're a plc there are demands being placed upon them by their investors stockholders yeah which they might be a bit greenwashy at points you know making demands for the sake of making demands rather than meaning it but it is well, they, they maybe don't understand how the difficulties at times, you know, that, that that can be part of it as well, the complexities. Some people come up with a, let's make everything at zero targets, um, for instance, and um, uh, without having really done their homework to work out what uh, what that what that actually means, you know. You know, not just that we don't do. We need we need to be as aggressive uh, and and as ambitious as we can, of course. But um, you know, uh, and it is fascinating that we have this split between uh, this progress that's happening at an investor level and a finance level and the tax system as well and that that is something that you wouldn't really i suppose have foreseen i mean i have to say it's in a meeting yesterday i shouldn't divulge too much detail uh but the eu taxonomy specifically uh this th- there's a real sense with that for instance that whether you're ready for it or not it's coming you know mm-hmm. um, and, and it's going to it's going to change things radically and that might might help to kind of put money on a lot of this you know yeah, and just to pick up on two things there. So on the on the last point, it's probably worth bearing in mind how much it is costing Ireland on a yearly basis by going over our carbon emissions allowance. Like we're paying fines every year. So I think a wider conception of public finances would make what we're suggesting in terms of charging VAT on demolition at, at, at the normal rate more palatable. The other thing to say, and, and Jeff, you're kind of getting at it there, what we're arguing for is is not a general principle that new build is not a good thing. Of course, there will be a lot of situations in which a new building is requirement and is required yeah. and is more sustainable. I suppose what we're saying is that the, the current culture and the current tax system is not incentivizing or not even encouraging the conversation to be had. You know, well, do we need to demolish this building? Can we keep some of it? So it's it's not to say that new build bad, retrofit good. It's more to say, let's have the conversation uh, rather than just, you know, continuing with this culture of demolish and rebuild. 
That's yeah, so. Quite... In other words, so to clarify, the CIOB does, chan, does stand. The O in CIOB does stand for of rather than say opposed to. So it's not the charge <laughs> uh, opposed the building. No. Yeah, yeah I, I don't want to see that uh, that headline in the red top tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, given how we've said again and again how complex all this stuff is, how ill prepared, like your membership organisation, so. What sort of support are you like? Are you offering support to your members to help them get to grips with these challenges? Right, because we hats off to the lobbying. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, as I said, we're an education institution, uh, and we offer training and, and education and a lot of uh, sustainability practices within the built environment. We also just published uh, last week, actually, a sustainability guide for organisations. Um, so, yeah, we, we are making moves to ensure that our members are on board with the cutting edge of sustainability within the sector. But I do think it's really important to acknowledge that uh, 95% of the construction sector in Ireland, and I think it's a similar stat in the UK and probably internationally, are SMEs or even micro enterprises. So it's very important that at a public level, they are given the resources that they need to transition into into more green practices and, and on that front i you know i do celebrate the construct innovate center that government has set up uh, operating out of NUI galway dasby and the general transition to to green skills that we're seeing and i think what we're suggesting here can complement a lot of that the other thing to say is that you know if you charge more tax on something you get more money so a lot of what we're talking about here the the revenue that's generated can be reinvested into the sector to ensure that smaller firms that may not operate to an ESG strategy or something like that are put in a position that they can get on board with the green agenda and and operate in a more uh, sustainable way. Cool. And you guys, I mean, it's important just to highlight once again, we have an international audience. Like You guys operate internationally. So the CIOB is relevant whether you're in Killybegs or Kuala Lumpur. Yes, I've got colleagues in Kuala Lumpur, uh, China, Australia, um, Saudi Arabia, Dubai, now in the now in North America, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa. Yeah, so we're very much an international organization. Uh, and the, the work that we do and the different themes that we operate in, we're conscious that they look different in, in different places. So, you know, sustainability practice may be further ahead in the likes of North America or the UK and Ireland than it is in other countries whose construction sector is only developing. So it's important that we're, I suppose, culturally sensitive to where a given sector is at uh, and don't, as Jeff was saying earlier on, just put the boot in on net zero come what may. But I suppose what we're asking for in, in Ireland's situation with the reorganization of VAT seems like a pretty sensible thing uh, given where Ireland is in terms of its stated ambitions um, in its climate legislation. Yeah. Well, you're talking of a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, I think on that note, uh, should, do we wind up down? Because we've. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. 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 We're over now. At very short notice. So, uh, Joe, thank you very much for, for joining us. Is there anything you'd like us to to flag in particular? Any. any um, you got any plugs you want to make? Yeah. Any plugs. I mean, we do have a research piece coming out. In the new year so we'll call it q1 2024 looking at that adaptable buildings issue so i'll be asking the question number one what can we do to adapt existing buildings to different uses so typically commercial to residential but number two 
what policies can we put in place to ensure that if we are going to continue new building new buildings and city centers that they are adaptable to different uses without sacrificing quality in the near term we've got a project we're doing with task who are a think tank based here in in dublin uh looking at modern methods of construction for social housing uh, right. and that's going to be coming out uh within the next month or so so big plugs for both of those things if, if it's possible dan i would have loved to have followed some of those threads of, that kind of marxist threads that you were uh holding <laughs> out there <laughs> yeah well, well we can get to that on another day yeah 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 indeed indeed if yeah. you've got a kind of uh yeah, a Marxist podcast. Sign me up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm 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 urging Jeff to get in touch with who's the Sinn Fein politician? Like no, Sinn Fein. Brennan. 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 Yeah, I mean Sinn Fein historically, like their roots are in uh, Marxist political philosophy. Yeah, Owen's very good. I mean, I, I he ran a, an event uh, maybe maybe a year ago now. Uh, and I spoke at it, and yeah, I think certainly they're his roots, but the closer they get to power, the more <laughs> pragmatic, I would say, he's becoming. Now, yeah, I, I think he talks a lot of sense, and he probably knows more about housing than uh, any any other minister or shadow minister. So, uh, yeah, yeah I would encourage, encourage you to have him on if, if, you, if possible. Oh, my, I'm, I'm Jeff, get on it. Uh, I think I think it would be great. I I think it's really interesting with those guys how they're they're being lambasted or lampooned for their populist approaches to promising to fix the housing crisis. Oh God, have you heard them? They keep promising. God, they're forever going on about fixing the housing crisis, like as if it's a bad thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. If you're not saying that in opposition, what are you going to do, really? <laughs> yeah, and uh, just for them listeners. Uh, that might be a bit feared out by the, all this talks uh, talk of Marxism. Like we're not actual Marxists, as in like we we have beards, but we're not trying to emulate Karl Marx. It's just a useful <laughs> way of looking at the 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 economic structures and the politics of economics around us. Like it, it's the one that's been most right. Capitalism is a bit of a busted flush at this point because you can't reconcile the, as we alluded before, you can't reconcile the prevailing economic system with the nature of a finite planet. You can't. There's always Mars, then. Yeah. Yeah. You can't compound growth your way to another. And what we're we consuming now, a world and a third every year. We're, like we're waiting for some amazingly uh, rare, uh, rare, uh, not even Earth, rare planetary mineral. Asteroid to hit us, wipe out some cities, major uh, reconstruction project there, loads of economic activity, and all the wonderful rare uh, minerals that we'll we'll be able to 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 profit from. Yeah, come on, yeah. yeah. Just I'd... like to say that a meteor hitting the Earth is not CIOB policy. Um, <laughs> we, we are very much in favor of uh, avoiding meteors at all costs. <laughs> <laughs> I, I watched the Abyss the other week. You know the James Cameron movie. Like oh Harry yes, Mary Elizabeth Mastronsonio, where they discover aliens on the seabed. So suddenly, I became more open to the prospect of deep sea drilling and mining. Like, <laughs> if we can find them fellas to to dig us out of this hole. <laughs> yeah. well, all right. Well, on that hope, that note of uh, absurd hope. Um, thank you very much for joining us today. We'll make sure we've got all the links in the show notes, uh, as ever. Listeners, please join ACAN, join the AECB, join the IGBC, check her own space. Women only, I'm afraid. Sorry, fellas. Um, 
talk to us about the consultancy. We can help you in all sorts of areas. We're doing loads of messaging, positioning, and a bit of proposition development at the moment. What else have we got, Jeff? The magazine. Oh, that's it, the magazine. Jeff yeah. is in hell. So buy advertising. Do you, need, do you need to buy any advertising, Joe? <laughs> not at the moment. Not at the moment. It's not a. It's not really my role, so I wouldn't trust myself with advertising funding, to be honest. Oh, so you know someone who might want to buy advertising? We're going to start putting advertising pitches into at the end of. Oh, I'm, oh, look, I'm happy to. Yeah. I'm ha- as, as I often no. say, I'm happy to connect you with the appropriate colleague, and you can uh, you can take it from there because it's it's, pick- it's not a language I understand. <laughs> we will pick that up offline then. Um, all right, really, thank you so much. <laughs> thank you both. Really enjoyed it. Much appreciated. Cool. All right, then. Um, All right. Cheers, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Hope you enjoyed it as well. Bye.